Well, again, good morning. Uh, my name is David. If I haven't met you, I'm the lead pastor here at Apostles Houston. And on behalf of our church family, we're so glad that you're worshiping with us uh, today, uh, especially if today is your first time. Um, just reflecting on the last I don't know, 18 to 24 months and just thinking about the fact that, man, if the last two years or so has taught us anything, it's that the world is an uncertain place. Uh, it is just constantly changing. Uh, jobs changing, schools changing, friendships changing. Uh, over the past year, our church has experienced so much change. I think all of us have been wrestling with really big questions about what we believe, our, our convictions, our values, questions about things like race and sexuality and politics. Um, so many of the things I think that we thought were kind of like firm beneath our feet seem like they're, they're just constantly shifting in our culture in this moment. And so uncertainty is all around us, but it's not just around us, it's also in us. There's a sense of uncertainty, I think, that just pervades our lives right now and, and causes us to question things even within us, questions about who we are, uh, questions about who God is and what he's like and if he cares. The truth is, um, we are all more fragile, I think, than we really care to admit, and we live in a very fragile world. And despite all our efforts to kind of control things and, and to kind of keep the world comfortable and making it feel safe, uncertainty is just a part of our life. It's just a part of our life. You know, this feeling of uncertainty uh, that I've experienced over the last two years in particular, it reminds me of the first time I ever got to uh, ride on a catamaran. A friend of mine uh, was at the beach, and he said, hey, why don't you jump on, uh, on, on our Hobie cat? It was a Hobie 21. We're going to push off the beach. And so I was like, heck yeah, I'm jump on, and we're going to take off. And about five minutes in, I realized I'd made a huge mistake, huge mistake. Uh, two pontoons right in the middle, big canvas trampoline, and we're just going through the surf, and it is a choppy day. Swells are huge, and we're just doing this. Over and over and over again. And I'll just tell you, the waves weren't the only thing that kept coming up uh, that day on the Hobie Cat. Um, it was miserable. I was on the back, white knuckling the whole time. We finally came back in. I was so embarrassed, but I was so grateful because we got back to the beach. And I literally crawled. I think I crawled onto the beach and just hugged the sand because uh, it stopped moving. Everything just stopped moving finally. And I thought of that because I, I think our experience over the last two years has been kind of like my, my ride on the Hobie 21, right? Like it's just, it's been this up and down and constant churning and just uncertainty. Um, and I think many of us are just longing for a sense of something that's just steady, right? Some solid ground where we can get under our feet and, and things stop moving around so much. And so maybe this morning you are, are feeling... Uh, just like things are just moving constantly in your life. And there's a sense of anxiety that comes with that and uncertainty that comes with that. And what you're really longing for, uh, like I did that day, was some solid ground, right? Just some solid ground to get your feet under you. And, and I want to encourage you, if that's where you are this morning, whether it's a deep anxiety or deep uncertainty, or maybe you're just a little queasy um, with all that's been changing and going on, I just want to encourage you. Uh, the Lord wants to offer you some solid ground. He wants to give you some solid ground this morning. 
And, uh, and so my prayer, my hope is that you, you find some safe shore to land on this morning as we're talking about God's heart. And that's what we're doing. We're in this series where we're talking about God's very heart. And, and our goal, as we said, is just to bring our, our fragile, you know, uh, uncertain hearts before his, uh, his good and faithful. And as this morning, we're going to learn steadfast heart. His steadfast heart. That's what we need. So today we're going to focus on that. Um, we're going to put our uncertain hearts before his steadfast heart. And to do that, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 7. We spent uh, last weekend in Hebrews. So I want to invite you, if, uh, if you have a Bible, open that up to Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, we got some Bibles scattered in seat backs near you. You can grab one of those and open up to Hebrews chapter 7. And we're going to use um, these verses to help us kind of get a glimpse at uh, at the heart of Jesus, we've said that's the best place to look. The best picture we can get of, Jesus, of God's heart is by looking at Jesus' heart. And so we're going to look at the steadfast heart of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 7. Now, steadfast, uh, it's not a foreign word to us, but it's not a word that we probably use or traffic in uh, most days. And so it's, it's a word, I think, though, that we need. We desperately need this idea of, of the steadfast heart of God. In the Old Testament... Uh, for example, the, the, the people of God used to sing. They literally would sing songs about the steadfast heart of God. Second Chronicles 20, 21, a uh, great, great lyric. Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. This phrase, the steadfast love of the Lord, it appears over and over in the Bible. And if you uh, were to look at the Hebrew word uh, for steadfast, it's the word hesed. Hesed, H-E-S-E-D, Hesed, and it's hard to kind of translate on a one-to-one basis the idea of Hesed into a single English word. So sometimes it comes across as kind of God's kindness or His mercy. Uh, other times it's His gracious forgiveness, um, but it often points to this idea of God's like His absolute commitment. His loyalty, right? This idea of his faithfulness, his steadfastness. It's, it's that he is exactly who he says he is and he will never change. That's his steadfast love, his steadfastness. And so this hesed, this steadfast love that we encounter in scripture, it means that in a world of uncertainty, there's one thing that we can be certain of. And the one thing we can be certain of is God himself. We can be certain that God is God. And so to his people, that means that God, is, he's absolutely committed to his people. He is constant. He is unchanging, unswerving, unfailing, faithful to the very end. That's who he is. His heart is steadfast. And so I want us to look at the steadfast heart of God this morning. And like I said, last week, we looked at Hebrews for this window into Jesus' heart, um, and we're going to look again at Hebrews in chapter 7. And what we're going to find, and what Hebrews chapter 7 really, uh, the main idea is trying to get across is this, is that Jesus Christ is a perfect and permanent high priest. Jesus is the perfect and permanent high priest. Now, we talked about the high priest last week, this, this idea of what that is. And so I encourage you to go back and listen to last week's sermon if this idea of, of Jesus as high priest is new to you. Um, but we're going we're gonna to kind of press into that some more this morning and talk about this idea that he's the high priest who will never change, uh, that he is committed, unswervingly committed to bringing his people to salvation. And this unfolds 
in chapter 7 through this comparison between Jesus on the one hand and this kind of enigmatic figure that we encounter called Melchizedek. Okay, and so we're going to look at what we learn about Jesus, uh, and it's summed up in Hebrews 7, 17, right? You are a priest forever. You is Jesus. You, Jesus, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so when we read this verse, immediately, if you're like me, you're asking, who in the world is Melchizedek? Jesus I've heard of, Melchizedek, maybe not so much. Uh, So who is Melchizedek? Uh, And what does he have to do with Jesus? So to understand who Melchizedek is, um, you need to go back to Genesis 14. So if you go back to the beginning of the Bible, there's this figure that we meet, this man named Melchizedek. uh, And he comes to meet Abraham. So this is way back before the people of God had kind of been formed and called uh, as Israel. And so Melchizedek, he meets Abraham. And he's described in that encounter as a priest of the God Most High. That's Melchizedek. And then what happens is Melchizedek gives Abraham this amazing blessing. He he does this priestly act of blessing over Abraham. Now, there's a lot more that you could kind of dig into. And people have spent a lot of pages trying to understand more about Melchizedek. But here's, if I could just sum up what's significant about Melchizedek here. Melchizedek is a priest uh, that precedes the establishment of the priesthood. In Israel, right? So you have priests in Israel who are raised up, but that's hundreds of years after Melchizedek. Whereas Israel's priests are all descendants of Aaron. So you have this this priesthood line that comes from Aaron. Melchizedek is completely separate. He's a figure who precedes all of this, and he's totally different because of that. So Melchizedek, in other words, he, he comes to represent something different than all the other priests and the priesthood in Israel. And he comes to represent something about God. And this is what he represents. That God would ultimately appoint a perfect high priest who would not be like the priests of Israel in the line of Aaron, who were mortal and sinful, but would be perfect and eternal. And so this idea is, is all through Scripture. There's threads of it that run through the big story of the Bible. And so one place you could look would be Psalm 110. And in fact, Hebrews 7 points to Psalm 110 several times. So this is what Psalm 110.4 says. It says, the Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So that should sound familiar. We just read that in Hebrews chapter 7. So this all comes to a head in Hebrews 7, 24 and 25. So I know this is a lot. Just stick with me. It's going to pay off at the end, okay? So just follow me to 24, 25, where Jesus' permanence and constancy becomes the foundation for our confidence. This is what it says. He holds his priesthood permanently. That is, again, is Jesus, because he continues forever. Consequently, in other words, therefore, Jesus is able to save the uttermost, to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Okay, so I know that's a lot. What, what, are, what are we getting at here? What are we saying? So in other words, Jesus as priest is permanent and unchanging. And he is able, as we're told, to save to the uttermost. That is save to uh, the uttermost, save perfectly and ultimately, completely, once and for all. 
So that's what it means that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. The world might change, in other words, right? People around you might change. Uh, you might change. But you know what will not change? Jesus will not change. Jesus will never change. He is permanently your great high priest. He is permanently your savior. He is permanently Lord. And so because he's permanent, his love is permanent. It will never fade. It is steadfast. Does that make sense? Okay. So that leads us to this incredible truth, right? That the steadfastness of Jesus is actually what steadies us. If you want to know what right do we have, what cause do we have to be steady in this life, what do we have to stand on? What we have to stand on is God himself. It's Jesus, our great high priest. The steadfastness of God steadies his people. I wonder if you've ever had someone in your life who was a steadying influence. I, uh, I recently connected with a pastor uh, in my life. Uh, who I've known about but never really spent much time talking to, uh, and he has become a steadying influence in my life. He and I talk maybe, maybe about once a month, every other month, only a handful of times we've spoken, but it's really helpful for me. He pastored our church for over 40 years, and every time I call him, I, I have some questions, right? I have questions about uh, being a pastor, about sustaining uh, my intimacy with God about how to navigate leadership in a church or vision in a church or conflict in a church. What doesn't happen here, no conflict here. You know, it's other churches I hear about, right? So I talked to him about these things, and I talked to him about being a godly husband, and I talked to him about being a good father, and every time I call him and I spend a little time on the phone, I leave my time with him steadied. He just has this steadying influence in my life. And here's, here's the deal. Jesus wants to be the steadying influence in your life. And what steadies you is his steadfast heart. It's solid ground for you to stand on in this life. It's Jesus. So the question then becomes, well, how can Jesus' steadfast heart actually steady us? And this is where Hebrews 7 is so helpful. This is what Hebrews 7 is going to reveal to us. The steadfastness of Jesus steadies his people. How? I'm going to give you three ways. First, Jesus steadies us by his sacrifice. He steadies us by his sacrifice. What someone is willing to endure for you, right? What someone is willing to endure for you tells you a lot about how they feel about you, right? It's one thing to stand by somebody and be committed in the good times, but what happens when things are hard? When things are costly, do they remain committed in those moments? I think the truth is that many of our commitments are not as deep as we like to think they are. The truth is that our reputation, our career, our security, when those things get threatened, we will bail on commitments in a heartbeat. In a culture of hyper-individualism and instant gratification and consumerism, all too often, all it takes, right? I know this has been true in my life, all it takes for me to bail on significant commitments is inconvenience and discomfort. It's just not convenient. So we let the commitment slide. In fact, even in most committed relationships, there's often a pain point, Right? You reach that pain point 
where one person's not sure they can keep going. It's hard. It's hard to stay committed. It's painful. Rare is the commitment that says, I will truly sacrifice for you. Even rarer still, the commitment that says, I am willing to die for you. But Jesus is. He did. Hebrews says, Jesus, in verse 25, it says, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. How do, how do we draw near to God? Through Jesus. You know what Hebrews 10 says? Hebrews 10, 19 says, Therefore, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by what? The blood of Jesus. Let us draw near to God. It's by the blood of Jesus. We draw near to God. We enter into his presence by the blood of Jesus, by his sacrifice. If you want to see and experience the steadfast love of God for you, consider what he's done for you. Consider the cross. Consider that he gave his life, shed his blood. Why did he do that? He did it because he loved you. He was spit on. He was abandoned. He was falsely accused, whipped, scourged, shamed, and crucified. And he endured all of that for me and all of that for you. He never gave up. He never tapped out. He never gave in. The cross says no matter what happens, you can trust Jesus. You can depend on him. He says, I love you and I'm committed to you. And so this morning, if you are feeling uncertain, if you're feeling uncertain in this life, I want to encourage you, look to Jesus. Look to the cross. Look to his sacrifice. Jesus steadies us by his sacrifice. So that's the first way he steadies us, through his sacrifice. second way he steadies us is because he never changes. His unchangeability, you could say, but he never changes. I want you to just a little thought experiment. Think about who you were 10 years ago. Okay. Think about who you are today. Have you changed at all in 10 years? Maybe a little bit, yeah? Here, here's another thought experience. If you prayed to Jesus 10 years ago and you prayed to him today, Has he changed? He hasn't changed at all. Same Jesus. 10 years ago, today, 10 years from now, 100 years from now, a million years from now, same Jesus. Jesus never changes. We're told about his permanence in Hebrews 7, 24. He holds his priesthood permanently, and he continues forever. What a promise. He continues forever. Jesus never dies. He died and rose from the dead. He is, I love verse 16. It says, Jesus is the life indestructible. He's unbreakable. He he cannot die. He rose from the dead. He will never die. And then God goes on in verses 20 through 21 to promise that Jesus will never change. The Lord has sworn. When the Lord makes an oath, you can count on it. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And forever for God means forever. Jesus is solid ground under our feet. It never, ever moves. Never. I've been listening to a, uh, a podcast recently, and one of the episodes highlights what's called the deconversion. I don't know if you're familiar with this phrase. It's when someone kind of deconstructs their faith, and they just give up on Jesus. They don't believe 
in the Christian faith anymore. And it's about a well-known pastor who went through this experience, a Christian author. Many of you would know the name, probably been influenced by their ministry. Just really sad, really sad, kind of this deconversion story. He no longer believes in Jesus at all. Thousands of people have been helped, right, through this man's ministry, through his writings, through his talks. People have seen this man as an example of commitment to Christ. Their faith has grown because of his faith and his example. And then he changed. He changed. He's not the same man. He changed. Jesus never changes. Church, I just want to encourage you because I think this happens more than we would care to admit, that we put our faith not in God but in men, men and women, people. We put our faith in ministries. We put our faith even in the church at the expense of our faith in God. And so I just want to say, and I know this is true for many folks who find their way to apostles. I think it's a particular ministry, actually, that we have to people who have been hurt by the church, who have found their way to apostles. And in that process, their faith in God has been eroded because their experience with people or with the church. And I want to say I'm sorry that's happened if that's happened to you. Leaders and pastors and churches should be worthy of our trust. But I also want to encourage you, don't give up. Don't give up on God above all, and don't give up on the church. There's a lot of cynicism about the church. Don't give up on the church. It's God's church. It's Christ's bride. Don't give up on it because of the unfaithfulness of a person or a community. People can change. The church can change. But God never changes. God never changes, never will. Hebrews 13, 8. Man, write this one down. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's a promise. It's true. So put your faith in him. He'll never fail you, never hurt you, never leave you. This is the Jesus who loves us with a steadfast love. So he steadies us by his sacrifice. He steadies us because he's unchanging. And then finally, he steadies us by his constant care. At the heart of the gospel is the good news of our salvation. God's love for us has been demonstrated on the cross. Jesus took on himself everything that would ultimately destroy our lives, sin and evil and death. And when we put our trust in Jesus, he rescues us from all those things forever. And so the gospel is about that. It's central to the gospel. The gospel is also about what Jesus does every day, not just one day. It's about what he does every day, and it's about how his salvation impacts us in every moment of our lives. A Christian life isn't just about what he's done. It's about what he's doing right now in this room and in your lives. And the question is, what is he doing? <laughs> Listen to this. You want to know what Jesus is busy doing right now? Verse 25 in chapter 7. Jesus is able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus always lives 
to make intercession for them. He is able to save since, because he always lives to make intercession for them. That's what this verse is saying. Did you know that Jesus is praying for you? Jesus is praying for you. How amazing is that? I mean, how much comfort do you take when, when a friend calls and just says, hey, how's it going? I, I'm praying for you, right? How much hope does that offer you? How encouraging is that to you? Now, just hear this. Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is praying for you. He always lives to make intercession for you and for me. The word we translate as intercession carries this idea of advocating on someone's behalf. Right? That means Jesus is always, not sometimes, always standing in heaven before the Father, praying for us, advocating for us, seeking our best before the Father's sovereign throne. What a promise. Now, why is that such a comfort? Why should it be such a comfort? Here's why it's such a comfort. Because Jesus is steadfast. We are not. We are not steadfast. We waver. We doubt. We lose hope. We walk away. We lose our faith. I love the hymn, Come Now Found, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's our hearts. And Jesus knows that. And you know what? He loves you. And he prays for you. Prone to wander. Prone to leave him. And so he prays for you. You know, just before Jesus went to the cross, he was praying for one of his closest friends, a man named Peter. And in Luke 22, we're told that Jesus was praying for Peter. And Jesus told Peter what he was praying for him. And he said, look, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you, test you, right? sift you like wheat. But I listen to this, have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, here's what's amazing about this story. Jesus prays that Peter's faith would not fail. Luke 22, you know what happens in Luke 23? It fails, <laughs> totally fails. Peter denies even knowing Jesus. Now, did Jesus' prayer not work? Are Jesus' prayers not effective? Here's what's amazing. At the end of the Gospel of John, after Jesus rose from the dead, we encounter Peter again. It's amazing because Peter is so dejected and so uncertain, he has no idea what to do. So like most men, when they have no idea what to do, they go fishing. So he's fishing. He's out there fishing, and Jesus finds him fishing, and he says, come to me, Peter. Peter jumps off the boat, swims to the shore, gets to Jesus, and they have this amazing conversation that John records, and here's the highlight. Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? And then he says it again. Peter, do you love me? And he says it again. Peter do you love me? And Peter, in that moment, so overwhelmed by the presence of his Lord and the depth of this question, 
You know what he says? He says, Lord, you know everything. And you know that I love you. Underneath all the pain and the shame and the guilt, all that had happened from Luke 22 to the end of the Gospel of John, Peter knows. He knows. He knows Jesus loves him, and he knows, Lord, you know that I love you. Sometimes, like Peter, our faith fails us. Sometimes it's barely hanging on. Sometimes it looks like the fire has gone out. And then Jesus comes, just like he did to Peter. You know what he does? He just fans that flicker of faith in our hearts. He just fans that flicker of faith. He prays for you every day. He is praying that your faith will not fail you. He prays that you'll endure. He prays that you will make it in this life trusting him. He reminds you that his mission is to love you with a steadfast love. Sometimes that prayer is answered through a sense of his presence in the deep secret places of our heart. Sometimes it's answered through his word or through the encouragement of a friend. Sometimes it's answered through uh, the words of a worship song or maybe a poem. God speaks into our lives in all kinds of ways to encourage us. He is interceding for us, and he prays for us. Recently, I was eating lunch with a pastor friend of mine here in town, and uh, as, as we ordered from the counter, he, uh, he kind of surprised me a little. He turned to the cashier, and he said, hey, we're pastors, and when we get together, we pray. And I was just wondering, is there anything that we could pray for for you today. And the cashier, she got this super awkward look on her face. Uh, and, uh, and she said, well, I'm not really into that kind of thing. And there was this pause. And then she said, but I'm struggling with my finances right now. And I guess you could pray about that. And so we did. And I just thought of that this week. I thought, man, what? What if you could hear Jesus say to you, hey, when I'm, when I'm with my father, I pray for you. How, how can I pray for you today? How can I intercede for you today? I wonder what you would say in response to Jesus. Be encouraged, church. In an uncertain world, in uncertain times, Jesus is praying for you. He's praying for you every day, every hour. He prays that your faith would be strong, that you would know what is true. He's praying that you would not be enticed by Satan to look to the passing things of this world as the things that matter most, but that you would look to him. Jesus is praying for you, and his prayers for you will be answered. So whatever uncertainty you're facing, whether it's in your job or in your finances, or in your marriage, or with your future. You can set them before his steadfast heart. You can ask him to surround you and these things with his undying, self-sacrificing, eternal, and steadfast love. Amen? Amen.